As organizations migrate to the cloud, they need information security professionals who are cloud savvy. Through CSA, you can earn your Certificate of Cloud Security Knowledge, or CCSK, which is widely recognized as the standard of expertise for cloud security. As part of the CCSK training, you will learn the core concepts, best practices, and recommendations for securing an organization on the cloud regardless of the provider and platform. So, if you want to prove your competency, increase employment opportunities, and learn to establish a baseline of security best practices, visit our website, cloudsecurityalliance.org slash education slash CCSK. That's one word, cloudsecurityalliance.org slash education slash CCSK. Welcome, I'm Moshe Ferber. And I am Ariel Munafon. And this is the Silver Lining Podcast, a podcast about security architecture. Good morning, we are in uh, Silver Lining Podcast, uh, another episode uh, here from Tel Aviv. Hi Moshe, how are you? Perfect, good morning, Ariel, good to see you. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Liran, how are you? I'm okay, thank you for having me. Great. Our so- guest this morning is Liran Tal from SNCC, uh, basically... Uh, He's developer advocate, which is like the, uh, one of the more interesting titles I've heard. <laughs> and uh, I know that you've been, uh, uh, you have a big role in SNCC because I see you talk all over the world about uh, SNCC and uh, basically how to do proper security. Mm-hmm. And we're glad to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your role in SNCC and what are you doing there and what SNCC is doing. Cool. So I joined Sneak about a year ago. Um, uh, indeed, as you said, a developer advocate at Sneak, which basically means it is kind of my mission to help developers be successful in terms of securing their projects. And it has a whole lot of um, kind of activities around it. So it is everything from Indeed, like you just described. It is about going into conferences, traveling to meetups, meeting, meeting developers face-to-face, talking to them, how do they do security today for their projects? Is it something they are concerned about? Are they not concerned about it? How can we make it better? What are their challenges? Um, so this is kind of ar- around like the traveling stuff, but there's a lot of things that we do that is more about engaging them and really making them successful. So developers out of time need, uh, need content, right? Where do they go to learn something like a new technology? They may need like a cheat sheet on how to build uh, secure apps with Node.js or how to use NPM in a secure way if we talk about the JavaScript ecosystem. So it's a lot about really writing content, researching a lot of content as well, and making that accessible to developers. So that takes a lot of forms like building cheat sheets and reports and blog posts and stuff like that. And cool job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is your background? I mean, you, uh, you should know developers and you should know security, which right. usually they like oil and water. So. <laughs> right. So it started, so I, I joined Snake year ago, but before that I was uh, leading a team, a React and Node.js team at Nielsen, and before that for six years at HP Software. So I've been doing dev uh, for basically uh, most of my life. Um, and uh, and prior to that, the whole security kind of thing is is just you know me from like my when I was sixteen years old, you know, doing Linux and LAN parties and stuff like that. I was very much uh, exposed to uh, to the security world. I actually, used to run a bulletin board system uh, for six years since '95 uh, or so until uh, 2000. Uh, yeah, so it, it was called the Hackers Choice PBS after a very very famous uh, German hacking group. Mm-hmm. So you, you have a bit of a security kind of like background. 
Um, and it's, it's it's an interesting choice also like to make that decision to move from a dev or a, a you know a dev team lead to to developer advocacy, which is a little bit more you know less uh, less technical role. Uh, but uh, uh, in the past two years before joining Snake, I've been doing a lot of public speaking and you know doing a lot of like node related uh, public talks and security as well. Uh, I was writing a book. I published a book about essential Node.js security two years ago or so. Uh, so actually what happened is I noticed that I've been starting to do a lot of this like activism around nodes, uh, around security as well. And I've always been a part of open source, no matter, you know, if I've been doing that as, as part of my job or as a hobby, etc. cetera. Uh, so like my GitHub repo is always has in those green boxes, always find the time to do this. Um, so taking that also into account is in the past maybe one and one and a half years, I've also been uh, uh, involved in the Node Foundation Security Working Group, and that has been an amazing journey in terms of seeing how the Node projects act from the core and towards the outer ecosystem. So we do a lot of triaging of CVEs and vulnerabilities, and there's a lot of like processes involved, and all of this happens in open source. Some of it is is very uh, um, uh, private limited because of the sensitivity of, of things that we're doing. So it's not like open to everyone else, but a lot of the open stuff is is handled like a monthly call that we're doing that anyone can join like on, on a stream on YouTube, uh, everything handled, uh, all the processes and stuff like that handled on a public GitHub repo. So if anyone wants to join and, you know, make his opinion, that's, that's, only, that's, that's very welcomed. Um, so really all of that kind of like, you know, the Node Security Working Group, the, the public speaking, the open source, the Node.js thing kind of like, I uh, uh, got uh, into a combination where doing this at Sneak in the scale of like reaching out to developers made a whole lot of sense to me. So this is why I've kind of like made that leap and why it's been like, like you said, an amazing and, you know, very fun uh, journey. Yeah. Interesting. So let's dive in. Yeah. We're talking course. about open source uh, security. Mm -hmm. My first question for you, what is the challenge? I mean, why is open source security different than any other types of security? And what exactly is open source security? I mean, from the <laughs> technical point of view. Right. So uh, there's been a lot of reports in terms of, so I mean, we probably need to define what open source is, but I, I don't want to go into like, that religious place of putting that into <laughs> be a careful, frame. Be careful, be yeah, careful. Yeah, I don't want to go into that religious place. Uh, but like we, we use open source in terms of like software being open source, uh, uh, component, software components being open source, you know, everyday lives. Um, I have this uh, this amazing slide, which you know, when I saw it first, uh, uh, made it made like a, hell, a whole lot of click to me in terms of what it actually means, and that is, a lot of times we have this mental uh, exercise, like if we do it, that we imagine our code or our application, it looks like you know this whole big blob of something that we wanna that we that we're building, we wanna ship out to customers, uh, but the reality of it is that the code that we actually write ourselves, like the proprietary code that we actually build is very small and researchers, uh, research, uh, researchers have been showing that this is actually something that is uh, a very small amount out of that whole big thing that we're building. So, uh, you know, as developers, we may write something between ten, uh, two to 10% uh, in terms of the whole code base and the rest of it, like 90%, that is open source. When you say open source security, that means the security that is related to basically most of the app that you ship out. That is, that is that is the starting point of, of everyone in this field at this point. Okay, can you give us some examples of what can happen if you don't imply good uh, open source security practices? Yeah, I can give you it in uh, one word, Equifax. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, very notorious example. Uh, I mean, that's the one that is, you know, the public news that had made it, that everyone know about it. 
the Equifax incident happening in uh, 2017 is basically around uh, a security breach that happened because uh, Equifax is the company, the credit company in America, uh, you, know, you know, business uh, that happened uh, because basically due to an unpatched vulnerability in the Java struts uh, library. So they, you know, it's, it's a common library, you know, people use that. Uh, and, you know, open source components, you know, just like everything else, they have vulnerabilities in them. So if you don't track it, uh, if you don't, you know, are vigilant to update it, to upgrade, to fix it in time, you are left behind. And that means, especially because open source components are, you know, by definition, they are open source. Mm -hmm. So the vulnerabilities about them will be public, uh, you know, and known to everyone else. So basically everyone knows about those vulnerabilities and you know them as well. So if you act on time, if you upgrade on time, you are on a safe path. But if you're not, then you're actually in a more vulnerable path because it's not like someone needs to find their way, you know, like, you know, hacking the Pentagon or whatever to find, you know, that that one little bridge. It's actually very known, like they can fingerprint it, they can find out, they can fuzzy test it. And at that point, you know, if that, that vulnerability is public, they can exploit it as well. So, yeah, Equifax is kind of like that, that, uh, uh, that uh, reminder of why this is so important uh, for us to act very, very actively and very immediately when we can. If I remember correctly about Equifax, uh, the problem over there was it's not just a simple upgrade, just clicking on a, they had to recompile the entire application in order to uh, cover this vulnerability, uh, which it basically depends. adds a uh, complexity. Yeah, it, it, it's one angle of it, but like it depends because that's kind of like a Java thing, right? And you know, maybe no, no one was even like, you know, um, like following whether that should be uh, something they should do immediately and roll it out across servers, etc. cetera. Uh, but if I take like other examples like NPM, for example, mm -hmm. At the end of the day, obviously, you have to make, you know, the upgrades and then roll it out to production, right? You have to go through that uh, SDLC process. But some of it is is made, like, very easy if you use the right tools, if you use, you have the proper kind of, like, pipe, the security pipelines into it. If there is, like, a proper process that you build into it, and this is not some kind of ad hoc thing that you do because then it's, yeah, it's costly. You know, it takes time. You don't do it all the time. So maybe you are kind of, like, a bit afraid of making that because you might break something else. So you you definitely need to have kind of a process built into it. Okay, so th this basically brings us to the next level. I mean, we pretty much understand now why we need open source security. We also understand pretty much what is open source security. I mean, identify what kind of what kind of libraries and the uh, software and frameworks you use, and identify the vulnerabilities or uh, not even vulnerability, even misconfiguration, I guess, stuff mm -hmm. like this. Uh, how do we solve it? <laughs> and, and as always, if you remember, we're trying to put things on the perspective of people, uh, process, and technology. Yeah. Uh, start with the people angle. Yeah. Let's talk about it. So with people, I think um, we need to understand like who is who is who is in charge in an organization to find it, and then who is in charge to fix it. And this is where sometimes there's a bit of a of a disconnect. So. DevOps came to, I think, kind of like make us, you know, deliver faster, etc. break the silos, you know, all the slogans around it. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, it, it, it is something that brings the organization together. And like we, if we have to work together to build something and security in that sense is, is, was a bit left behind until, until, you know, these recent years, it's like people of security are not exactly always communicating well with people of, you know, dev or DevOps. And most of the, like the traditional security that, you know, we've seen and I've experienced as well working with large organizations is there is a security team, but they are usually, you know, they, they float the problems. They find the issues and they, they communicate it towards R&D managers, et cetera, to developers. But at that point, it kind of stops. Like people at that, at the, in that sense, stop communicating. And then it goes into, 
uh, how do we fix it? Who needs to fix it? Let's prioritize it. That goes against the backlog of a lot of other things to do. And then it's hard because, you know, people do not really communicate together. It's, they just like exchange messages. So or, I think, or fight, yeah. Yeah, or fight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's another alternative. I may have seen that or not. Um, so how do we fix it with people, right? How do we want to fix that? So I think it's a mindset, first of all, of understanding that if you want to fix the problem, you need to, to basically talk and empower those who actually fix it. And there is this ratio all the time that we talk about in this space, which is uh, for for 100 developers, there's probably a ratio of, you know, 10 DevOps people, but one security person. And that's a very generous number as well. Uh, usually, it's, you know, maybe much more than that. And so if you understand that if you need to fix something like fixing vulnerable libraries or fixing, you know, insecure code, it's not a security person that's going to go into the code and fix it for them. It's the developers that will fix it at the end of the day. So this is where the mindset of people that we need to empower, that we need to kind of like um, educate them in how this is important. This is the this is the change that we need to do. And it needs to be a top to down change, top to bottom, to understand that security is, is a mindset shift and we are responsible for it as developers. We, uh, you know, there's a common saying in DevOps, uh, you build it, you own it, right? You ship it, you, yeah. you everything around it. And this is kind of like the same with security. If you build it, you kind of own that security. And security is kind of like going into that cross-cutting concern where it's not just security, it's also accessibility and performance. What if you build a website, you know, and then in in uh, in like a Black Monday, whatever, that Cyber Monday, you, you want to, um, you know, um, make that website performant, but, you know, maybe you didn't think about it uh, early enough, right? And then there's a problem. With security, it's a lot more painful because when that happens, that usually... Uh, involves a lot of like bad press and uh, litigation and you know a lot of other costs that you do not do not uh, uh, incur until that happens and that's why it's, that's a problem. So people being the solution is for me developers understanding that this is part of their responsibility and something that they should own and we need to make it very easy for them to basically attend to those fixes and and make it work for them and not really drive them to go read OWASP top ten or you know some kind of like a very bad document or. Uh, a very elaborate document that will send them into this spiral that will they will never get out of. Okay. Yeah. Um, one, one thing, uh, the, when you you know talk to people, they, they use the DevSecOps or Dev DevOpsSec, uh, uh, whatever. But you are you are not uh, putting the the responsibility on the DevOps. You are putting it more on the, on the developer. So uh, if I get get, yeah. get it right. Yeah, because I think so. DevSecOps, I think, connects to to the processes that maybe we'll get to next, but. DevSecOps is more about having having a mature security pipeline where when you deploy something, you have enough safeguards, you know, you're going through a safe process. Uh, and developers do need to be to own that security of, you know, what so basically what I'm saying is quality is not just how beautiful the code is or how many test coverage it has. It needs to be right accessible and performant and secure and all of these other things. And that's the quality of the code at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I think what drives here uh, basically two things that we need to consider. First of all, uh, shift left. Okay, so you want mm -hmm. to find the problems at the earliest possible. So this is why you're going to the developers because they're left, they're where it, everything begins. Second is the ratio that Liran mentioned. And I was going to ask you if the, if the, if the data is correct. I mean, mm -hmm. 100 developers yeah. to 10 that's, that's DevOps a to, one, uh, to yeah. one security. And mm -hmm. this, this means everything. Yeah. I mean, 
you cannot have one one people co- one security guy covering 100 uh, developers mm-hmm. so you need to move it uh, yeah. to their uh, to their to their part of the uh, yeah. of the and field. just think about how many components mm-hmm. those 100 developers actually own it's not you know it's not the days of having a mo- one monolith you know based you know can you can just throw the, the the build of materials the bomb and say these are the you know the one uh, 100 or whatever developers uh, sorry uh, development libraries that they're using uh, but rather now we have microservices and you know, so many other moving parts. Go ahead and try to control that around you know a team of or a group of of R and D, a hundred developers. That's that's pretty insane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So from the process angle, we already mentioned the DevSecOps. I, I think the the biggest problem here: how do you integrate the security testing into the development lifecycle? I mean, uh, yeah, that that's maturity. Yeah, that, that's that's a good question. I think most people have a hard time here as well. So I think you know, people is kind of like culture that you 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 are able to kind of fix if you do it right. Um, DevSecOps is more of a very fluid thing uh, in terms of it is not you can't copy paste a pipeline from one organization to the other and make that work. That doesn't it doesn't work like that. There's so many things, so many moving parts that there has to be some kind of like custom uh, custom built uh, kind of like security pipelines for some of this. Uh, and sometimes you just want to gate people to not, you know, release anything. And other times you may want to enable them, but, you know, stop only on like high vulnerability thresholds or something like that. So it very much depends on, you know, the policy that you want to set. But I would say with a process in trying to enable and uh, introduce a DevSecOps kind of like pipeline into an organization, we can talk about what that could, you know, can be built out of. Uh, but it has to be something that I think at first what will be easier is to have a baseline. So, you know, you, you, you scan your project, understand what are, where are the vulnerabilities, uh, but then you have some kind of like baseline to say, well, this is, you know, this is, we have reached the baseline and let's not, you know, go beyond this. And, you know, let's not now introduce more security vulnerabilities through different uh, uh, measures. Um, and, and I think we can do it, we can take a look at it from like different angles. So one of the, one of the, uh, one of the things that actually uh, a very uh, uh, recent or DevOps, DevSec, DevOps and DevSecOps report that you know we released along with uh, um, uh, Puppet, Puppet Labs is the, the notion that having a threat modeling uh, process actually contributes a lot to the responsibility that security developers, are, uh, you know, security people and developers actually feel. So that actually contributes a lot in terms of having that ownership. And if you think about it, the threat modeling kind of like um, uh, process is something that brings together everyone in the organization that are the stakeholders. So just by having that, you know, that that process, just by having those meetings that, as you said before, you know, we shift left. Having those meetings, you know, means that now everyone are kind of like thinking about security in the back of their heads. And, you know, that's already, you know, towards the good place, right? So this culture, uh, this culture process that we're doing uh, relates a lot to how we do DevSecOps in general. It's, it starts with those things of like understanding the security um, um, uh, dangers, you know, the risk, what we can do to mitigate them, and then start, you know, pouring in whatever tooling makes sense. And I can give you some example of like very, uh, very... Um, very, uh, I would say, uh, low-hanging fruits for tooling that I've done with uh, uh, for open source projects. So open source projects have developers from, you know, div, you know they're, 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 they do not work together in the same like office, right? They're like very distributed, etc. So one uh, very easy win was, for example, let's ensure that we have some kind of like Git commit hooks that we do not um, uh, commit anything that is, you know, very uh, sensitive. So any passwords or APIs, etc. And this is something that you, it's a very easy win. But if you think about, you know, what what is uh, the cost of it is, you know, if you actually commit that publicly or that repo that you have done, you know, you may think you're doing a private repo, but then 
know, two years later, someone decides, oh, it's an amazing library. Let's do an open source change, a culture shift. Let's, you know, let's, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, make it public. It's an enormous, you know, uh, uh, take in terms of the cost that it can incur to the uh, to the organization, and it's not that easy because, like, if you if you you know if you get someone to even you know code review it, you know, there's no there's no APIs that I can find. Well, maybe it's hidden in like the first commit, right? Because this is version controlled. It's not just the latest snapshot that you release or something like that. So there's like a lot of those like uh, I think really good ROIs. Uh, I, tools that you can uh, you can implement in an organization. It's just very easy example for one of them. The other one that uh, obviously like, gets us more, I guess, I guess, towards the tooling perspective is is, is basically what Sneak does, right? It is uh, open source vulnerability scanning and fixing and monitoring and all of that. Um, and why this is so easy is because it relates back also to the to the problem space that we have with open source vulnerabilities in general with those uh, software components, and that is. Based on what we've seen is 78% of the time for an ecosystem like NPM, we will find, uh, uh, sorry, uh, 78 of the vulnerabilities that we will find in an NPM ecosystem, it will be in, in indirect uh, dependencies. So actually, even if you like add like the express middleware for Node.js projects and stuff like that, uh, we may not find it in specifically in Express, but we will find it in all of those about 47 dependencies, the transitive dependencies that Express will pull in uh, with your project as well. So it means it is not even enough to like go and like review change logs of Express, etc. It's an amazing process if you're able to do it as a developer, but it's not enough because that pulls in more direct uh, or indirect dependencies too. And that is why this problem space is, is like so complex and why it needs to be solved. Um, and and using tooling that actually uh, actually you know scans and validates those uh, open source components whether they have vulnerabilities or not is an easy win because doing static code analysis is very hard based, especially with like dynamic languages like JavaScript and you have lots of false positives um, and there's like it takes a lot of time to run it and doing dynamic testing is also kind of hard because you have to have like the security experience to actually do it right to make you know understand how the application works builds everything around it instead of just you know fuzzy testing you know in general something and maybe again then you have maybe false positives or not uh, so so kind of like doing this uh, understanding what components you're building and you know since that's the majority of your app anyway it's like an easy way to go ahead and you know close that that loop that you do not have vulnerabilities there so it's, it's another example for why that's like a very easy win, very accessible win that you can just add to the project, you know, forget about it, you know, let it run in the background. I have a question before we dive into the next one and uh, the technology, a question about the process. From your experience, is it usually uh, I mean, the, the integration of open source into the code, is it usually made like a, when they design the application and they think about the architecture, they're saying, okay, let's use over here uh, this open source product, or is the decision of the developer is sitting down on, next to his laptop and he said, ah, instead of developing it, maybe <laughs> I'll take a couple of lines or a couple of libraries from uh, GitHub or, or Stack Overflow. Maybe or they whatever. do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean wha wha where is the, can, what can you give us? Uh, where, where does it happen more and which, which one brings more problems? Yeah, that, that's actually a very smart question. Yeah. I think I haven't been asked that before. Um, it's very smart because it actually looks at the problem from a different perspective. And, you know, doing R&D for quite a while before joining Snake, I can tell you that, you know, you do not start by talking about, you know, let's see which libraries we should use. Um, it starts with like a whole, you know, high level and then low level design kind of like uh, processes and documents, etc. Um, and part of that, you do actually think about, you know, what is the implementation details, you know, later on? What is this like a feasible thing or are we like just, you know, uh, uh, mumbling around? 
So I think uh, when you start building a project, you do not specifically think which open source libraries you will take. And more to aggravate the problem is you always, you know, just like we just said, right? You always add more and more in time. Like, you know, now you need a feature to like, you know, send emails, send Twitter notifications, send something. So, you know, uh, I think the developer mindset at a very low level is, well, I need that. Let's let's go into npmjs.com. Let's, you know, do a search, you know, Twitter, Node.js, whatever library. Let's see which has the most popular downloads and, and you know, which has the more uh, stars or whatever. Download it, you use it. There, there's not, there's not a lot of, um, more uh, due diligence in terms of using it at first. Mm -hmm. And this is what we need maybe to kind of like make a bit better in time. Okay, so like uh, we always say about cloud security, don't give them a, a walls and a barriers because you have no idea what they're going to use. Tomorrow they will use another right. service. Let them run and then build your pure auditing or uh, compensating controls or detective controls because again, it's not like they're saying, okay, the, we're going to use this list of, uh, and you can whitelist those uh, in advance. You have no idea yeah, what's, what, will roll, what, what will roll in into the production. Yeah, that's totally hard, mm -hmm. especially, I think, uh, in NPM, because you have like mil literally millions of packages, and that is like light years ahead of other ecosystems, like Java or anything else that's you know, very mature, but you have you know, a few uh, hundred of thousands of libraries. So mm -hmm. the choice and the movement of, of JavaScript developers using open source libraries is significantly faster than other ecosystems. So it's very hard to limit it. Okay. So the last challenge is the technology angle. Again, we've been all, all around technology, all, all the conversation, yeah. but let's focus specifically. What kind of technologies do you need in this uh, new uh, environment? Sure. So I think if we understand that uh, developers are the people to kind of like, you know, that that's who we want to engage and those are the people who actually are involved with owning the security, then you want a tool that actually, you know, gauges towards developers. You know, if they are going to fix it, you want to make their lives easier. Uh, and if we understand that as, as a process, we want something to build into our pipeline and actually uh, goes hand in hand with uh, the people that we actually try to target, which is developers, then we want to help them do it in the workflows that remain very close to their home. And that is where... Uh, you know, for, for us, what we had in mind is the vision where developers own security, and that basically is what the essence of Snake is like a developer-first open source security tooling, right? So that means the tooling needs to enable you to fix the problem, not just find it or alert you. So the beautiful things of what we're doing, and that's like kind of like, uh, uh, I think, where the pitch is, is all around not just finding that, you know, one specific ver uh, version of a library is vulnerable, but what we will do is we will actually open a pull request to your, uh, to your repository and suggest you the fix to upgrade it. And it doesn't really stop there because a lot of tools do that today already and caught up with the whole sneak kind of mantra, but it's also doing it right. So for example, when, uh, so like, this is a really interesting actually uh, anecdote on open source and maintainers. So sometimes maintainers will actually issue uh, a security fix for a library in a very, in a major upgrade. So if you know 2.2 is vulnerable, the fix will be in, in you know in major version three, and no uh, no other fix as well. So developers, though, if we if we give if we open that uh, open uh, open source pull request to the repository uh, to fix it, and we just you know say we want to upgrade from two to three. Then there's like a dilemma. First of all, uh, maybe that's a major change that developers, you know, understand maybe APIs will break, etc. So it's not a very easy win to go ahead um, and, and merge it. And the tooling, what it needs to do is, first of all, two things. If there is no other way 
to really have the security fix be beyond you know that single version that someone had actually uh, you know decided to publish as a major one, we need to tell developers this. So actually, what we do is we really tell them this is a breaking change. You know, just be careful. Uh, you know, see all the tests have passed, etc., and then you know uh, merge it. The other thing that we do is we do not always seek for the latest versions of packages. So to uh, when we open pull requests with Snake, what we do is we look for the most minimal semver change closer as possible to the version that we are that has the security fix, and that is what we uh, what we offer. And not all tools that do that. So meaning if there is like a fix in 2.3 and we are in 2.2, even though there is like major version 3 or 4 or 5, we will not do that that big jump because we understand that developers don't want to you know make that leap as well. So this is like where I'm saying, you know, tooling has to be in the same mindset of how developers work, you know, the workflows, what is, you know, what is what they feel as like a very easy win, what works with their workflows and what doesn't. So I think you know, that's a really, really good example of, you know, taking the essence of developer first security. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Any questions, Ariel? We move no, to I, 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 summary. Just, yeah, just thinking about all the, you know, uh, how in the real life it can be really possible to give the responsibility to developers. This is why the, the thing that uh, mm -hmm. that uh, I'm thinking when when you are speaking. <laughs> um, I, I think it gets us yeah kind of to the summary of it. But like yeah. like I mean, the conclusion here is uh, it, it is. I think we can deny that developers own security at this point, right? We we understand that full stack developers are like front end and back end, but not anymore. They also like, you know, send off, you know, uh, functions to the cloud. They're like, you know, they're much more responsible. So security is obviously a part of it. We cannot deny it. Now, the, the thing is, how do we make them, how do we make them successful yeah. at owning that security? And I think it is, like you said, a mindset shift that we have to do. And developers, I think, are actually actively doing that. You know, when I'm talking to developers, they are telling me, you know, well, you know, how do you decide about a software, you know, component in terms of security perspective, et cetera. So they have this mindset. And now we need to understand that we need to give them some tooling to make it work, you know, in a more easier way for them. Yeah. Well, this is uh, kind of uh, the talk that we have with other CISOs from the other side that they really understand that. Yeah, well, the yeah. developers are the king and they have access to everything today. And mm -hmm. the idea is, what we need to master is how to give them the proper uh, uh, tools and give them uh, the blessing and uh, just give them again guardrails and not uh, not barriers. Yeah. Okay, so summarizing this, uh, open source security is a very big issue again because, as you said, up to uh, what was the statistics? Oh, it's a ninety percent of code is not yours. Ninety percent of code is uh, is open source. <laughs> this is an, an amazing uh, numbers and. Uh, we can understand what big, how big is this security problem is. My only question is, uh, so many developers to do only ten percent <laughs> of the code. <laughs> They're probably writing open source for other companies when they work. Yeah. I, I wonder if you, if you want them to reinvent the wheel and not use like the Spring framework no. and just write it themselves. You know how how bad yeah. that's, that's going to end. Of course, uh, the organization wants to develop faster, yeah. and open source is definitely the way to do this. Because uh, yeah, my, my mother-in-law is asking me about when she will get the new <laughs> WhatsApp feature uh, and stuff like this. So yeah, so if my mother-in-law is, uh, is chasing new features organization definitely uh, are on that so um, open source security is a big challenge because you have so much open source in your uh, environment and it's not uh, it's not like a strategic de decision that you can block at the CTO level or at the design level sometimes the the, uh, the end developer the end user developer will take the code uh, on on his decision and nobody will have visibility to that so uh, the way to deal with that is first of all uh, from the uh, people angle is to give them more authority and this goes back to every episode we recorded developers are kings 
uh, in this environment and you need to relearn them. Uh, again, the, because of the statistics, there are 100 developers to each security personnel, so you will not be able to catch up with whatever mm -hmm. they're doing. And the way to do this is basically changing the process. Uh, DevSecOps is a nice word, but uh, behind the scenes, you need to give them the tools to make sure that they write the code properly and test it properly and give them the insights. I mean, not, not there's a vulnerability in your code, go deal with that, but the insights should be useful, like download this version, uh, it will solve this, and if of course, it if it requires additional testing or it breaks the, your application, you need to know about uh, all of those dependencies. And from the technology point of view, you're say, uh, basically saying that you, you need to have, again, by going back to the right tools, you need to give them the right insight, you need to, to you need to connect to the right repositories and let them understand what, what are the fixing options. And all of this should be part of the, basically, of the pipeline. Uh, anything uh, we missed in this summary? Sounds good. <laughs> Let's hope everyone do it. Yeah, <laughs> from now on. From okay, now on. <laughs> so thank you, Liran. It was a really pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was Thanks a pleasure a lot, having Liran. you. Thank you, Moshe. Thank you, Moshe, and thank you to all our listeners.